Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. I'm off to Utah this week, the first of three weeks on the road. That will take me from Utah to Iowa to San Diego and then back to Honolulu. So lots to look forward to over the next three weeks, that's for sure. I get a reminder that there is still time to register for a few of the upcoming events. We've got grading from the inside out, the two-day training virtually April 5th and 12th. I'll be in Des Moines, Iowa next week, March 28th and 29th. So still time to register for that if you need to or want to, if you're in and around the Des Moines area or are interested in traveling there. And then April 25th and 26th in San Antonio. Standards-based learning in action also in San Antonio, April 27th and 28th. So uh, four days in San Antonio if you want to get a double dose. The mindset, then the uh, standards-based learning in action uh, could be a great four days for you and your team. All of that information for the events can be found on the Solution Tree website. Uh, I'll have links, of course, in the show notes for that as well. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is my friend Rosa Perez Isaiah. She is the Director of Elementary Equity and Access in the Norwalk La Mirada School District in California. So we're going to talk about equity like we did with Ken last week. We're going to continue that conversation. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to talk about an assessment mantra that I think helps create a balanced approach to assessment in your classroom. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. conversation with Rosa Perez Isaiah is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a public service announcement because I am, of course, a man of the people. (laughs) I'm a giver, and I want to make sure you are fully aware of what lies ahead. Here's my PSA. Beware of the just curious. Now, I've noticed this trend in online communication recently, but especially on social media, where I'm just curious is the new I disagree with you. I've seen this so many times, but let me tell you about one of my most recent experiences with this. And honestly, I should have known better. I should have seen it coming. Recently, I had commented on a post online that someone had asked. They asked a question, and the question they posed was this. Does traditional grading stifle the learning process, or is it the excessive standardization that is the culprit? If the latter, does standards-based grading become part of the problem? Now, that question is... It's a little absurd, to be honest. I mean, I know this is a person that I don't know the person, but they're probably trying to find a clever way to make standards-based grading the problem. Yes, grading based on solely the evidence of learning is actually what stifles the learning process. It's it's sort of a, it's a nice try to say, you know, we got to go back to that traditional grade. Anyway, so I commented on the post. I mean, it's just, it's kind of an absurd question, but anyway, I don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I, I, you can see through that, those types of questions and go, oh, I see what you're doing there. Okay. So I comment on the post and it includes an assertion saying that standards and standardization are not necessarily the same thing, that you could have a standard, but still have creative ways of assessing and affording students multiple means of showing what they know. Now, a reply to my comment was this, Tom, I'd be curious to hear how standards and standardization are not intertwined. Now, when you hear the word curious, what would you think? Well, I initially thought, and like I said, against my better judgment, I initially thought, okay, this person wants to know more. So I went ahead and added a comment to clarify the distinction 
which I think is pretty straightforward. Having a standard or a learning outcome does not mean every student has to do the exact same thing. You know, maybe the content is standardized, but then how I show what I know can be flexed or the process of learning can be flexed. If the process is standardized, then argument, you know, like an argumentative writing or informational writing or something like that, then what I argue or what I write about can be flexed. There's lots of opportunities within. Not everything uh, is necessarily uh, non-negotiable. So there are places where things can be flexed and you can get creative and all of that. So, okay. So I pro provide that clarification and I get back to my real life, right? Wrong. Nope. Back comes the argument, and through our brief exchange, this person drops another just curious on me while essentially debating what I had just asserted. Now look, I I'm not above debate, and I've been known to be wrong more than once. No problem. I have no problem with that. I don't know everything. Nobody does. In this particular incident, though, I knew I was right, but whatever. You, you want to debate? You want to debate. I thought to myself, oh, are you kidding me? Social media beef? I mean, that's so 2012. Okay, so he drops this second curious on me, and this was my response. This is literally what I said. I said, that's twice you've used the word curious when you aren't really looking for clarification, but rather you're looking to debate. Here's my email address, and I listed it, tshimmer at live.ca. I'll be happy to talk to you through all of this over Zoom if you are indeed curious. Send me an email and we can schedule it. I did that because I thought to myself, I'm not going to have this public spat on social media. That's just so old and so boring. You want to talk? Let's talk and I'll explain it to you if you are truly curious. So I was actually admittedly trying to test whether or not that person was curious. Now to his credit, he took me up on the offer, which kind of surprised me because honestly, this is not the first time I've ever made this offer, but it is the first time someone has taken me up on it. Because usually these types of debates are more about public performance than they are actually trying to learn more. But to his credit, he he emailed me and we set up a meeting and we had the Zoom. And it was a bit awkward at first, but it turned into a pleasant enough conversation as I explained my thoughts further. And I wasn't defending myself because... You know, I made an assertion that I think is pretty true, and I don't really feel like I needed to defend myself. But I was just explaining in further detail, because it's hard to type that out, so it's easier to explain in a conversation. But the whole conversation was under this false pretense that this person was actually curious. They weren't curious. They had no wonderings. They wanted to argue. Fine. You want to argue? Let's do this. No problem. But this passive-aggressive just curious approach has this I'm so smart tone to it. I'm the smartest person in the room. I've got this information in my back pocket that I'm about to spring on you, but I'm curious to see how you're going to respond so I can pounce on your response. It's dis disingenuous. It's, 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 I don't know. I just, I feel like it's a dishonest way to communicate. You disagree with me? No problem. I have no problem with that. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. I have no problem with that. I'm a big boy, and I'm happy to debate with the best of them. If I feel I have a defensible position, I'll debate anyone about anything, anytime. But curious? Oh, I'm just curious, Tom. It's like online lurking and trolling. That's essentially what it is. I'm trying to hook you with my curiosity, and then I'm going to expose your flawed logic. <laughs> No, I'm not triggered. <laughs> so let this be a warning to you all. When someone asserts that they're curious, they're not. 
Curiosity means a strong desire to know or learn something. When you're determined to argue, you're not interested in learning anything. So don't call yourself curious. At least if they would have said, uh, Tom, I'm just curious as to why you're such a dumbass. Well, okay, I could respect that. Okay, honestly, because I don't really care. But if the, you said that to me, I'd be like, well, here's all the reasons why I'm a dumbass. <laughs> okay, I've got 12 of them, maybe 15. Be honest. Don't call yourself curious if you want to argue. Just tell me I'm wrong and tell me why. And worst case scenario, I think you're a moron. Best case scenario, you help me learn and grow and see things from a different perspective. But calling yourself curious is disingenuous. So I could respect the honesty. I don't respect this sort of online lurking. So consider yourselves warned. Beware of the just curious people. They're coming for you. Joining me this week is my friend, Dr. Rosa Perez-Isaiah. Rosa is currently the Director of Elementary Equity and Access in the Norwalk La Mirada School District in California. As she has co-authored five books, including Beyond Conversations About Race, which came out in 2021. Dr. Isaiah is the recipient of the Loyola Marymount University 2019 Leader for Social Justice Award. That is a mouthful, but that is an absolute honor. Uh, Rosa is an educational consultant and international speaker who presents on a number of different topics, including educational leadership, culture, and equity, English learners, SEL as a lever for equity, parent engagement, and social justice. She also serves as an advisory board member for the Center of Anti-Racist Education and for the Alliance for Excellence Education Future Ready Schools. To say Rosa is an educational force would be an understatement. Rosa, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Delighted yeah. to be here today. So great to have you here. Uh, I, I, it's been a long while since you and I were face-to-face -face anywhere. I think we were at a conference together a number of years ago, and we follow each other on social media, of course, and the pandemic has kept a lot of people apart, so the podcast was a great excuse to uh, to to reconnect and and have a conversation today. And before we dig into the substance of our conversation, Rosa, I want I want to talk about your journey, and uh, and think about the arc of your career. Maybe highlight for us uh, the journey, the professional biography, and maybe some of the impact points along that journey that led you to becoming the educator you are today. Sure, um, this is my twenty eighth year believe it or not, as an educator. And really my journey began long before that. Um, I am an immigrant uh, to America. I'm an English learner. I'm a child who grew up in poverty. And I'm a person who was greatly positively impacted by educators. And that uh, that is where my desire to to do things uh, for others that were offered to me began. And my journey started as a teacher, uh, spent seven years as a teacher, classroom teacher in Watts um, here in California and worked in the best culture um, that I ever participated in. Um, and then my journey took me closer to home 
I have done everything. I've been an instructional aide. I have been a classroom teacher, a literacy coach, a bilingual resource specialist, an assistant principal, a teacher on special assignment, a principal for seven years, and now a director of 16 elementary schools, equity and access. And so those 28 years flew by. Um, as an educator in my career, I had some incredible mentors. And, um, you know, I struggled with confidence, self-confidence, and was really fortunate to have people around me that saw something in me that I didn't realize that I possessed and really encouraged me to pursue leadership, uh, created opportunities for me to pursue leadership, uh, which is very different than just encouragement. So I'm really thankful for those opportunities. Um, the most impactful and the hardest job I've ever loved was that of a principal, elementary school principal. Uh, these last few months, especially, I can only imagine what that was like at the site level. And um, I, when I first got into that position, I wondered if I would have the kind of impact on students that I felt I had as, um, as an educator. And I realized, especially through this pandemic, it truly is all about leadership and having the right people in positions that can advocate not only uh, with, with um, their statements and their mission statements and their vision, but with resources with fiscal resources, with human resources to create and contribute to the right conditions for um, student success. So in a nutshell, that is my yeah. journey. That is your journey. And, and certainly, uh, Rosa, you're uniquely qualified for your position in terms of your background and, and as an immigrant, as, as someone who was an English learner, someone who was a child of poverty, uh, you, you are certainly uh, able to speak with authority about the situations that students find themselves in. And as I mentioned, and, and you have mentioned, you are the director of elementary equity and access in your district. So can we now transition to talking a little bit about how you and your district have uh, approached the work and, and maybe specifically some of the strategies, uh, processes, programs, what have you done in your district that really shows um, the way forward when it comes to the work around equity? Um, I spent 18 years in my last district. This is uh, the end of my third, beginning of my fourth as director of elementary equity and access. And um, to be honest, I, I wondered, how do we begin? I came from a district where we started that work way before. Um, and I thought to myself, okay, I'm new. I want to build relationships, to establish trust, and to talk about a really difficult, um, hard topic for many people. Where do we begin? And I think the pandemic um, left us no choice but to have more serious conversations about that. Uh, 
So we were faced with almost an awakening. And when I say we, I don't mean this necessarily my district, um, the nation, where we knew that we had gaps. We knew that students struggled, but it was not in our face every day via Zoom. The inequities have always been there, but now they, they rose to the surface. And so as a district, we began to address some of those inequities. Uh, we were working with the basics. So we wanted to make sure that our students had devices and access to Wi-Fi and um, opportunities to, to be fed uh, for many of our families who, who um, depended and depend on those opportunities. We wanted to make sure that kids had books in their hands in addition to the virtual opportunities um, that were available to our community. So that was one layer. But then as we started the new year, um, we realized, okay, the, we're ready. We're ready for this long-term work. Um, as ready as can be, right? Uh, so we worked on a um, sell as a lever for equity uh, plan, and it's actually a three-year plan. And uh, my colleague, um, uh, Dr. Medrano, uh, really developed this amazing three-year projection of, of what we needed to do. And so we started that work in year one last year with a focus on the needs that, that both the adults and children presented, which is a need um, to feel safe and to be in a space that, that offered a healthy culture. Um, and that all began with some self-awareness work. And in that first year, uh, we talked about many things. We, we talked about inequity we talked about biases and we talked about our beliefs about children because we know that those beliefs do impact behaviors. Um, we talked about the myth of colorblindness and what that really means and what that may look like in the classroom. Um, but more than anything, it was really about self and what we bring to the table and uh, who our community is. Uh, we focused on funds of knowledge, on understanding who our students and families were, and valuing all those gifts that are brought to the classroom table. What do you mean by the myth of colorblindness? Let's expand. Let's explore that for a moment here. What, is, what do you mean by that? Um, I... I wrote a piece on this, I think it was two years ago, two and a half years ago or so. And um, when I started my career in the early 90s, uh, we believed that, you know, we're all part of the human race and we're all the same and we love each other and we're just a big melting pot. And, and as I, and I believe that, right? In my early 90s, I, I, I believe that as a teacher um, how could there be any other way? And I realize when we don't honor, acknowledge our differences, our languages, um, our cultures, our, our preferences, our ethnic backgrounds, if we don't see that, then what do we see? 
if you don't see that I am a Latina woman, um, if uh, who is a leader and comes from poverty and has had struggle and trauma in her life, then do you see me? Um, so I realized it was this romanticized, very comfortable version of, of what reality is. And the reality is, well, essentially a myth. The reality is that we do see all of those things. And that's not a bad thing. That is what makes us as a country, um, this diversity that we know is present. But more than anything, it's, it's critical, I feel, in, in education to acknowledge our, our amazing differences and celebrate them and, and use them in the classroom as, as we instruct. Um, because if we don't do that, then are we really fully seeing each other and seeing our students? And I don't believe we do. So that's why I call it a myth. Yeah. And I, 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 I grew up the same way for sure. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and believed it. And I think there, the spirit of it, I think is right in the sense that we don't use color as a divisive, uh, we don't use race culture as a divisive tool. We use it to celebrate and, and to truly see people, as you say, to acknowledging the differences doesn't mean there's a hierarchy or a ranking. It just means they're acknowledging those cultural, that cultural diversity that makes us more attentive to who is with us, who we're teaching, um, all of that for sure. Um, you had mentioned, um, you had mentioned self-awareness and I want to talk a little bit about bias because I think one of the hardest things for anyone to do is confront their own biases, right? Uh, I don't think anybody ever thinks they're really biased. And I, I don't think most people approach the day uh, thinking about how they might be biased toward other people. So I want to explore this for a moment. You know, the, people don't think to themselves, oh, today's the day I'm going to be discriminatory or today's the day I'm going to be biased. So two, maybe two questions here, Rosa. First, how how can each of us reveal some of our uncovered biases? How do we explore that? And then how do we go about the business of helping others see or explore their biases without putting them constantly on the defensive and making them feel as if they're, they're constantly being pressured uh, about who they are and questioned about who they are? Because there is a point where that probably might backfire in, in as a strategy. So what are your thoughts on that? How do we reveal this to ourselves and how do we help others in that situation? Yeah, um, I, I do love this topic. Uh, I, I always begin these conversations when I have them with my peers and colleagues um, by just saying that we all have biases. We all do. And some uh, positively impact groups of people. And as, as we've probably experienced at some point in our lives, negatively impact people. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to look in the mirror and be completely honest with self because um, it, it means admitting that we're not perfect um, and that in some way we may not have been equitable uh, to someone else. Um, I wrote a piece called The Power of Mirror Checks and and the power of mirror checks, what that is to me is 
is having a heart to heart with self. And it means um, identifying essentially our authentic selves. And that includes those biases. So as an educator, uh, some of the, the work that we've done includes just asking ourselves some, some honest questions. Do you believe all children can learn? All children. Um, do you value diversity? Uh, do you, what are your assumptions about your students or families in your school community? Um, what lens do you use to look at data? Do you have different expectations for girls than you do for boys? Mm. Who do you call on in the classroom? Um, whose history are you teaching? Now, that one is a hot topic right now. <laughs> um, and are you making uh, true, sincere connections with your students? Is there a barrier there and why? And I think when we begin to, to answer honestly um, to self, then it shifts the way we do things in our classrooms and in our schools and in our districts because you've just discovered a little more about yourself. And biases are beliefs and beliefs impact behaviors. And so if we want to change behaviors that hurt children, whether intentional or not, then we have to begin there. We have to begin with those mirror checks. What do you do when you're not honest with yourself? Like what in the situation, if you recognize, you know, I, I, I think most people believe they're being honest with themselves, even if they're not being honest with themselves. And so it makes me wonder about, because I think there's a fine line. One is that I think there should be some pressure in a way to confront some of the issues that, uh, that, you know, ourselves or others are, are having to navigate through. So it's not as though we can just tiptoe through all of this. However, there does come a point where people are, are feeling so defensive and, and put on the spot so much that it almost backfires. So what, from your perspective, is the answer to that? Like, how, how do I go about that? If I'm, if I'm being dishonest about myself and I'm in denial, if you will, are there some things that others could do in a, in a way with a little bit of finesse that might help me see some of that? Uh, this is where the leadership part comes in. That's really important. Mm -hmm. are, are we creating a culture of trust and transparency um, in, in our, our learning community? Um, whether you're a teacher or the principal, um, are we creating spaces to have these conversations? And when I first became a principal, when I first entered um, the dark side, as my <laughs> husband calls it, um, I, you know, it was nerve wracking. And I thought, how do I come in? I don't have relationships with, with most of these people. I know many of, of the teachers, but we're not like that. Um, and so we leveraged data to start having those conversations. And over time, um, over those seven years, uh, we, we really worked on that culture piece. I was super intentional about Dr. Muhammad's work. 
Uh, now I, I am a fan of his work and his work really impacted what I did as a leader. So school culture was really important to me. And school culture is an important part of this uh, anti-bias um, equity work because we hold each other accountable. And what as we build that trust to be able to ask questions of each other, um, we're working on culture and we're working on the nuts and bolts. And those nuts and bolts um, start with data. And if, if you're looking at groups of students with gaps, then that those conversations are held as a team. If you're leading a data conversation with uh, a grade level, um, with a teacher, with your, your staff, then you're looking for trends and those opportunities, those data opportunities that are not just assessment data, but but other pieces of data, attendance rates, referrals, um, parent engagement participation, asking the right questions to push a little bit as we learn together and as we grow to trust each other more. Yeah. But it, but, but it really is relationships, Tom. Yeah. Um, all of this work is, is um, really focusing on relationships with each other. Those relationships certainly lead us to being able to let our guard down a little bit to know and trust the person on the other side of that conversation, which is why, you know, sometimes I think confrontation doesn't work because the defense mechanism is up. I'm, I'm defensive and I don't know if I can trust you because we're early in that relationship or I don't know who you are. But once that relationship is established, it, it seems to me that you almost are able to lead people to their own self-discovery as opposed to pointing the finger at them and confronting them about maybe some, some biases that they, they hold that you, you create the conditions that make it safe for me to be honest about myself, even in a public space um, going from there. Would you yeah. agree with that? Is that sort of the idea of, of lead, leading, leading people in place? I do. And this work um, is ongoing. It's a journey. Yeah. And yeah. some people may not be open to that. I, I won't mm -hmm. say that a hundred percent of my staff and, and teachers loved what I had to say and, and wanted to work um, in this way, but 80% did. And that was right. important for our students. And so we don't give up on people. We don't give up on creating equitable uh, learning environments for children. Um, it's a journey. It's a journey that takes time. We wouldn't, um, we wouldn't do anything if leadership was all about popularity, right? We wouldn't push any initiative. We wouldn't talk about any change. We wouldn't try to push people to grow, push the context. If it was all about being popular and everybody liking what you're doing, then most people would prefer the status quo. And so sometimes when the right people are upset for the right reasons, you know you're doing the right work uh, for sure. Um, Something I know you talk a little bit about as well. We we kind of live in this world now, this this uh, world of alternative facts, and uh, especially when it comes to equity. When we when we hear you know the different the sides of the anti racist work, or whether it's the CRT or the sixteen nineteen project or whatever, there always seems to be this push for balance. You know, balance in the conversation, balance to hear quote unquote both sides. And I've I've almost come to see the 
the the expression both sides is almost a, a a coded word of of you know a hidden agenda almost. I I don't say that's always the case, but sometimes I see it that way because it seems to me, and and I'm open to being wrong about this, but but it seems to me that balance in both sides is a convenient way to kind of distort the truth. Well, that's your truth. That's my truth. Here we have both sides, and we're not going to agree. So. First question, do you agree with that? And second of all, um, how do we get to a place where we can actually have conversations about equity that actually start from a place of truth and honesty as opposed to trying to carve out our side of the story, if you will? Oh, gosh. Do you have an hour or two? Got <laughs> <laughs> as much time as we need, Rosa. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, both sides. It, it it's almost um, what's the word I want to use? It hasn't been both sides. It is in both sides, and and that's the irony in 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 that. I agree with you. I agree with what you said, yeah. um, but it's been one side. It's been one side for a very long time, for as long as we know, right? History, and um, this equity work. Is, is not about um, making people feel guilty or bad. I, I've heard this, this um, topic come up in a few districts and this idea that, that we would make children feel bad is, is horrible. It's a horrible thought. The work of, of equity is about sharing all sides and learning from history and things that have happened and working to be better, to be better and create um, a different narrative. So it's, it's ironic when I hear, you know, let's give people both sides an opportunity because I don't feel it's been just. Um, we have had one narrative and that narrative doesn't necessarily value the opinions of marginalized groups, uh, whether it's women, um, uh, people of color, uh, black males. It, it just hasn't been. Yeah. Conversations about equity, they must begin uh, from a place of transparency with, with a genuine desire to have a conversation about acknowledging who we are, where we are, our systems that may be inequitable for groups of people, um, that our goal is shared and that goal is to help every student be successful. And understanding that the truth is that our students um, are diverse. We're not all alike. We have different lived experiences. We have different challenges. We we look different and we can educate all children and acknowledge that reality. Yeah. If, as I mentioned earlier, we don't do that. Do we really see our students? It's dismissive of part of who I may be or certain groups of, of, of people are when we don't do that. Right. I don't believe we can truly educate without equity. I don't, I don't believe it. I, I don't think we can do it. 
I think you're right. I think we we get into a place where there has to be uh, real equity uh, so we can reach real outcomes uh, for all learners uh, in schools. And I think as long as that sort of one narrative continues to dominate and we continue to isolate and we continue to otherize certain uh, students or or uh, segments of our population, we're going to continue to get results that are disappointing to us and results that are not really serving the greater good, that's for sure. Uh, Rosa, I want to finish up by expanding the conversation a little bit to leadership or, or turning to leadership, if you will, um, certainly in the work you do. And we talked a little bit about this prior to uh, recording today, the interesting dichotomy in education uh, that 75%, roughly 75% of all educators are women. And yet when it comes to leadership, uh, the numbers are dramatically smaller and lower. Uh, something like 30% of leaders at the secondary level are women, and so it's closer to 50% for elementary. Uh, so, so I have, again, two questions to ask about this as far as leadership is concerned. Why do you think this discrepancy still exists today? And is it exponentially more challenging to be a woman leading the equity work? Yes, but let me go back to the first question. <laughs> All right, let's go back to that. Uh, so yes, absolutely. 80%, 75-80% of educators are women, and yeah. the majority of those women are not women of color. Um, and our students are. Our, our students, um, the diversity in our student population and public education is is growing in its diversity. Um, mm -hmm. So that's another layer. Uh, why do I think those discrepancies exist? Uh, for a number of reasons. I, I, I do believe power plays a role. I do believe uh, privilege plays a role. Um, uh, cultural uh, assumptions and biases about the, the roles of women and the roles of men, who's the breadwinner, who is not. Uh, society's views, actually the world's views of, of women and, and the value of women and what we have to offer um, and a woman's ability to lead. Mm -hmm. And we lead in different ways. It doesn't mean we don't lead in a great way. And if you study organization, organizational culture, those that do have more cyber diversity and more women in, in roles, uh, leadership roles, have great success. Mm -hmm. um, we're in a system that sadly doesn't believe that women are equal. And um, there's the gender gap, pay gap, there is the glass ceiling, uh, the limited number of women in superintendent positions, um, the, the gender pay gap, it's gotten better. I believe now it's about 80 cents to every dollar a male makes. When you begin to break it down into uh, black women, Latina women, Asian women, uh, you see even more um, injustice in that. So it, it's, it's a big job, but uh, we are determined to put a dent in some of those statistics and create some changes, we really are. And, and the, the issue with this is that we need men in positions of power 
to be allies and co-conspirators in this work for women. Women alone um, are doing this work. We need men to support this work for women. And many are. We need more. Yeah, we need more. You uh, quickly, you had you had said men and women lead differently. So how would you describe the difference, Rosa? General, I know we're stereotyping. I know it's hard to cast either men or women as a monolith. But generally speaking, how would you describe the differences between the way men lead versus the way women lead? Well, I can use myself as an example. Okay. Um, Uh, I believe I have um, a high uh, level of emotional intelligence. And if I look at my experiences, um, there is a difference in that leadership. Uh, Just because I'm quiet at times doesn't mean that I'm weak. I am firm. I am fair. Um, My male colleagues may lead in a different way. Uh, may not always um, have the same level of emotional uh, intelligence. And I hope I don't insult anybody uh, with that, but, but it's a different style of leadership. And I, I have seen this in every leadership position I've been in. And uh, it, we, we tend to follow that model. Um, for me, it's just who I am naturally. It's that's my personality. I'm processing. I'm thinking. I'm an intelligent person, and um, I am careful and um, strategic about my leadership. Um, and I lead with some incredible men. So when they hear this podcast, don't be insulted. <laughs> but you, I, I mean, that's the those are the comments I get from people. Yeah, sure. You're always so calm. You speak slowly. It's just who I am. It doesn't mean that I have to be the opposite to be an effective and strong leader. So that's my experience. Well, let's face it, Rosa, it's 2022. So you're probably going to offend somebody because that's just the way it goes these days. Um, And I think we all know that, you know, I, I think one of the problems we face in society today is that when we use the word different, somehow people interpret that as to mean better or worse. And I, and I think everyone can understand the idea that because men and women lead differently doesn't mean that one leads better than the other. One might be more right for the context, given the situation that a school or a district might find themselves in. But I think most, I think most would agree that there is a difference between the stereotype or the generality of, of, of how men and women lead. There are always exceptions that there are men who are very uh, dial into context. And there are women who, who have the same characteristics that men have. So we don't want to lock anybody into a, into a box, but I was just curious as to how you sort of saw it and, and how some of those differences emerged. And I think we all know they're there. And unfortunately we're just afraid to talk about them nowadays because even, even the disclaimer that you threw out there, I get where that's coming from because it just seems like we're, but you know, I think offending people is just what happens nowadays. There's just no way around <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, I think what if we worked in a place that really worked uh, hard to balance um, 
the leadership that you have on your staff. So we're talking about women in leadership. And, and as I move up, um, there are fewer and fewer of me, of people who look like me. Uh, and so that, that's a problem. Uh, organizations who work at creating equity in the workplace start that process with the hiring process. And so looking at who your candidates are, what your interview questions are, um, there's a great place to start in an organization in creating more equitable environments. Yeah. And it isn't just diversity for the sake of diversity. It is diversity both from men and women, but also culturally, uh, because it's the lens through which you make decisions. It's the it's the lens through which you consider the consequences of different decisions that are made, whether it be budgets or or staffing or you know, new programs, whatever the decisions are made, how we support all of our learners. I think you need all of those voices at the table in order to truly have a, a, an equitable leadership team that allows that equity work to flourish. So Rosa, I feel like I could talk to you about this for another <laughs> couple of hours for sure. I, I uh, but I've, thoughts. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Well, we'll, we'll have to do this again at some point down the road and pick up for part B of, of the podcast, but I've got two questions left as we finish up uh, for today. Uh, these are two questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And the first one is, uh, and it's, again, you can take this in any direction that you want to go, but educationally speaking, the question is, what keeps you up at night? Oh, that's a great question. Um, injustice, uh, children in poverty, um, racism. Uh, after George Floyd, I think there, people rallied rallied and and eyes were opened and that created a movement that i would hope lasted yeah and it has been challenging to sustain that level of energy towards creating equity in all systems um, not just education and i worry i worry for our future and for for children um we just need more people who are interested in creating those differences for kids. So that keeps me up at night. I think that keeps a lot of people up at night, Rosa. It, it, those are, those are big issues, big societal issue. Um, you're right about sustaining the work and um, you hope there isn't ally fatigue uh, and, and the work that needs to be done in some respects, the pandemic was the reason the, the equity movement caught, you know, caught steam and caught fire. And yet, you know, that with COVID, so many people are just wearing down in terms of all that's happening, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel and hopefully the momentum can maintain itself. Okay. Last question. Last question for today. It's a question about success and personal success, or just however you want to take this in whatever direction you want to go. But if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? On a personal level, um, success is creating um, healthy, happy human beings. I have a 14-year-old and a 21-year-old, and, and so far, so good. No major red flags. So for me, it just gives me such joy to, to see that um, 
you know, your children and your family that they're safe and they're healthy Uh, on a professional level. um, Well, personal as well is um, success is peace. Success is um, social justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Success is uh, creating systems throughout society that support children of every shade, color, ethnic background, um, uh, identity, what, whatever it is, uh, that for me is great success. And I work every day to, to do that in my work. I know my work has impact on a different level than the teacher or the principal. Um, but when I'm at the table, my voice is for equity and for children and whatever initiative or system that comes to the table, my question is, how is this good for kids? How does this support all kids? Of course, we worry about our teachers and staff. My role is, is to, to, to be the equity voice at the table and to use that lens, whether we're talking money or program or participation, whatever it is. Well, that definitely is success. And Rosa, I know firsthand that you are having a major impact, not just in your district, but uh, outside your district as well. Listeners, you can uh, connect and follow, uh, connect with Rosa and follow Rosa in, in a number of different places. On Twitter, the handle is at Rosa Isaiah. On Instagram, it's at Rosa Perez Isaiah. You can find Rosa on LinkedIn, as well as her website, uh, www.rosaisaiah.com. Com. Rosa, any other places that listeners can find you or connect with you? Um, I think you named the, those big ones. Yeah. 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 You, you also talked, you, you, you have or had a podcast that has been dormant for a while, but uh, yes. maybe, maybe uh, the rumor is that there might be some rekindling of that. So listeners, stay tuned for that. Yes, yes. My hashtag is we lead Ed. Okay. And um, gosh, I started that about seven years ago. And we were talking about leadership in Twitter is my, my preference. Yeah. And nobody was talking about the reality of lead. At least I didn't think so. Like <laughs> everything is not perfect. It's really hard right. to be a school right. leader. Right. And so I created my own. I had, um, uh, we lead ed chat, which has been dormant since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that grew, uh, BAM radio network, we lead ed podcast. And they're 10 to 12 minutes of great conversation about leadership through an equity and social justice lens. So just Google it. You'll find it. Fantastic. And we'll look for, uh, we'll look for new episodes, we'll say, soon. Soon. Uh, if we could do that, right. Yes. Uh, Rosa, this was fantastic. I really appreciated you taking the time to be here. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I hope this um, causes pause and helps people think. About I'm sure it, it will. I'm sure it will. Thank you, Rosa. Thanks. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about a mantra or an approach to assessment that I think will help create a balanced assessment system in your classroom. Now, when you hear the term balanced assessment system, I want you to think about how you will bring assessment into balance. I think that's an easier way to envision it or to phrase it. And if you think of it that way, 
you can sort of understand what we mean when we say balanced assessment system. Over the past few weeks, I have found myself repeating this mantra and explaining it so many times at different workshops and professional learning settings that I thought it might be timely to reiterate this here on the podcast. So many of us talk about creating a balanced assessment system in our classrooms or our schools, and yet we sometimes don't specifically know what that means. Now, first, a balanced assessment system does not mean equal. It does not mean an equal use of formative and summative assessment. A balanced assessment system, again, or bringing assessment into balance, means a teacher or a school understands the various purposes of assessment and the places along the instructional progression or the learning continuum where each purpose is most advantageous. Now, the mantra I want to operate from and the mantra that I often assert and espouse to teachers and schools is this. You assess because you have to, you grade when you need to. Okay, so let's talk about that first part. I mean, I've talked about this several times in the podcast, but I think it's an important reminder. We assess because we have to. You can't teach without assessment. Teaching without assessment leaves you in one of two positions as a classroom teacher. If you are actively involved in the lesson at hand, teaching without assessment means you're engaged in information delivery, not teaching. Now, it's really important to not mistake this concept with direct instruction. Even when somebody is lecturing, say at the beginning of a unit where it's important to lay a foundation of knowledge and the teacher is engaged in building that foundation with learners, there will be times where the teacher will stop, field questions, or uh, you know, engage the students in an activity or a conversation or pose a question to them to kind of gauge where the learners are. That's assessment, even if you're engaged in direct instruction. Like any instructional strategy, direct instruction has a place in the classroom at the right time under the right conditions. I know there's this caricature out there about direct instruction, but just you've got to cut out this nonsense and start talking about things in an authentic way. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, then you know I have an aversion to those absolute positions when it comes to anything around assessment or instruction or any aspect of teaching and learning. Extreme absolute positions are typically unhelpful and they are often more performative than rational. If during a lecture there are, however, no questions or the teacher never stops to engage the learners in any sort of conversation or questions or activities, then that's not teaching. That's information delivery. So it's important to make the distinction between the two. Again, I know there's this caricature out there, the cynical view of direct instruction, but I simply reject the whole notion that there is never time for direct instruction. You can't teach without assessment because assessment is how you will be able to take inventory on whether or not your students are learning what they're supposed to be learning during the lesson at hand. But the key is to understand that those assessments need not, and in fact, I would probably say should not, be formal. Now, the other position, whether you know, you're active, that's the one position. The other position it leaves you in is being passively involved, right? If you are facilitating some sort of activity where it's student-led, student-directed, student-centered, and you never check in with them about any or all progress that they're making, either in the short term or the long term, then you once again are not teaching. Now, I know it's kind of sexy these days to say, well, I don't teach, I facilitate learning. But to me, that's always been a bit of a silly statement. Teaching is what teachers do, and therefore it represents the means. Learning is what students do, and therefore it represents the end. And I've mentioned this also several times on the podcast, but for me, this I don't teach, I facilitate, it's all about... To me, that's one of those false dichotomies that's unhelpful. 
Assessment is, as I've said before, like a pyramid. I mentioned this back in January. I think of it as a pyramid or a triangle. The bottom, if you divide a triangle into thirds, think of it this way. The bottom of the triangle is the widest part. It's what we do most frequently, right? That's the day-to-day -day informal formative moments, the exit tickets, thumbs up, thumbs down, hinge questions, all that. The middle narrows. We do this a little less frequently, but it might be a little more formal, you know, a formal formative moment. It's at a pivotal moment during the instructional progression where it's important to take collective and individual inventory on what progress has made, been, been made so far. And then the top third is the narrowest, which we do much less. And this is the periodic summative moments that verify the degree to which the student has met the identified learning goal, right? So at the very bottom of the triangle, we assess because we have to. The top of the triangle, we grade when we need to, and we find some balance with that in the middle. So again, you can't truly teach without assessment because to not infuse formative assessment strategies into your day-to-day -day instructional design is to not gain confirmation that the students have actually learned what it was they were supposed to learn from the experience at hand. Now, that arguably is the most important question that a teacher can ask herself every single day. How do I know that my students have learned what it is I was intending for them to learn during this lesson? Now, I know that there are some who preach a kind of orthodoxy that says formative assessment should never go in your gradebook or leave no trace in the gradebook or anything like that. And I, for the most part, subscribe to that. However, I also know that in the age of electronic gradebooks and 24-hour access, that is helpful if parents have periodic updates in how their children are doing. And I also think it's somewhat cynical to say to parents, hey, parents, we have this open gradebook. You can log in, see how your kids are doing. And I know parents can become a little bit obsessed with the open gradebook, but it's also cynical on our part to say, we have an open gradebook, you can see how your, your children are doing, log in, and you can see periodic updates, but then we turn around and say, yeah, but most of what we do is formative and it never goes in the gradebook. To me, that's a bit of a bait and switch to say, oh, we're really open with our communicating, but we don't communicate. So this is where that middle section of that triangle comes in and it constitutes more formal formative moments, but they don't happen every day, but they happen at certain intervals where it's important to get confirmation that the class is ready for an uptick in sophistication. These assessments really should in, in most cases be zero weighted or no counted because they are not the full extent of the standard. Most of the time they're not, but they are important checkpoints, right? To make sure that the learning is still on track for both individuals and collectively for the class. And it also provides parents and others with that information about uh, whether or not the student is up to date with all of their schoolwork, their assignments, et cetera. At the top third of that triangle, again, is the evidence we use to determine proficiency. It's where grading occurs. So we grade when we have to, and there are times when we have to, okay? Despite all the noise out there, there are times where we have to verify the degree to which students have met the learning goal. So as I've said many times before, you can have a very loose or narrow definition of what a grade is. And so I'll sometimes say to people, if you get rid of grades, you're going to have to replace them with grades. You want to get rid of the letters of the alphabet? Fine. The idea that you're not going to have to summarize a semester's worth of learning and communicate to someone else, that's a pipe dream. That, that's never going to go away. At some point, the teacher is going to need to synthesize a long stretch of learning and be able to communicate that in an efficient and effective way to others outside of the classroom. Primarily, we're talking about parents, but we're also talking about the school district. And by way of a ministry or department of education, we also owe it to the public. It is, it's easy to become very insular about our role in school and the, the role that we play, especially in a public school setting. But every public school is, to some degree, accountable to the public. And that happens through the publicly funded system, which comes from 
typically the Department or Ministry of Education. So again, assess because you have to. There is no way to effectively teach without utilizing day-to-day informal formative assessment strategies. Now, whether you feel there are periodic moments where it would be advantageous to have a more formal formative moment is up to you. But there are a lot of reasons why it's important to periodically take inventory. Again, great place for common formative assessments with your collaborative team to have conversations about student learning and to calibrate along success criteria. All of that can be very helpful. Okay, just to check individuals as well as the collective in terms of their learning continuum. Then when we have to, we assess for the summative purpose, which simply means to verify the degree to which students have met the learning goal. And remember, summative assessment does not have to be an event. And many of you have heard me say this before on the podcast. Summative assessment, when we're using an assessment for a summative purpose, it can simply be a moment in time where a teacher examines the preponderance of evidence and determines the degree to which the students have met the learning goals. It does not have to be a thing. Now, the advantage of a summative thing is the opportunity to gather the most recent evidence that the teacher can use to make that determination. So for me, a balanced assessment system brings assessment into balance via those three sections of that triangle, right? On a day-to-day basis, we use strategies to gauge whether or not students have met the learning goals for that day. Then on strategic intervals, we gather more formal formative evidence to take inventory on where students are and to potentially communicate with others about the trajectory that students have been have established. And then we also use that information to help us learn, to calibrate on criteria, to talk about student success, to talk about evidence. And then we determine periodically the degree to which students have met the learning goals. And we do that summatively to report to people outside the classroom about the progress that, that children are making. If you assess because you have to and only grade when you need to, you will bring assessment into balance in your classroom. That's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com for if you have questions for Assessment Corner, if you have any suggestions for guests or anything like that. And a reminder, please check the show notes for the links for the upcoming Grading from the Inside Out and Standards-Based Learning and Action trainings coming this spring. Next week, my guest will be author, speaker, Jimmy Casas. We're going to focus on his book, Culture Eyes. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but anywhere you can leave a rating and a review would be most appreciated. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues or on social media. I would also really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.